All right, so we've been in the book of James, and we've had a, a couple weeks off as we went to see me. But I've talked about it's important for us to understand this book, and as we go through this first chapter, particularly as James sets the stage, as he introduces us to what he wants to talk about. And for us to understand the rest of the book, we need to understand this first chapter. We need to understand his position. And particularly, he's been talking about faith. His idea is this living faith, that we have faith, that we believe, and it's active. It demonstrates in our lives. As we started in verse 2, right off he starts to tell us to count it joy. That we're supposed to count it joy, determined to have a mental attitude of joy as we encounter trials, as we go through difficulties. And as we do that, he builds in us, he produces in us steadfastness. And this steadfastness then makes us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And overwhelmed with that, he says, well, if you need help, pray. If you need wisdom, pray. And that's not an if we need it, it's we all need it, so we need to pray. And then last, two weeks ago, we looked at this idea of the poor and the rich brother. And that regardless of our socioeconomic standing, regardless of our background, we need to change our perspective. James says we need a godly perspective. And particularly, we need that perspective as we go through these trials. And we have to be careful what we pursue. He talked about the rich man in the midst of his pursuits, he would fade away. And so God has set this course before us. He's chosen us and he's put us on this course and we're to stay on this course. And if we pursue, go about our pursuits, we can fade away if we go off course. But we need to remain on the course that God has put us on. That he's chosen for us. And in verse 12, he repeats, he sums up what he talked about in verse 2 through 4. And he talks about this future goal, this crown of life that we talked about two weeks ago. And that that's the goal, that's the finish line, is this crown of life, is our salvation fully realized, fully complete, that we would be there with, with our Lord, that we would be restored, that we would be made as we were intended in a relationship with Him. And that that's why we run, that's why we stay on the path. And in verse 13 where we start today, it seems that James is taking a, a left turn or he starts to talk about something differently. He's been talking about these trials and now he starts to talk about temptations. And as we talked about this on Wednesday night a couple weeks ago, this understanding between trials and temptations, we've got to understand the difference. And so I want to just give a definition and then I'm going to read through some of the passage inserting that definition. Instead of saying trials, instead of saying temptation, I'm going to actually give the definition of each. Because for us to get this message today, for us to make application, we need to understand the difference. So a trial is when we're experiencing a difficulty that's meant to prove and meant to strengthen our faith. So a trial is something in our life that's meant to prove our faith and strengthen our faith. And temptation is when we experience a situation that's meant to persuade us to think or to act ungodly, that persuades us to sin. So let me read through, inserting those definitions so that we make sure we're on the same page, we make sure we're understanding this difference between trials and temptations. This will sound weird, it's going to sound strange, but just bear with me and I hope that we get the point. So I'm actually going to read verse 2 through 4. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds 
of difficulties that are meant to prove and strengthen your faith. For you know that the proving of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And now I'm going to go to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under difficulties that are meant to prove and strengthen his faith. For when his faith is proven, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And now verse 13. Let no one say when he is experiencing a situation that is meant to persuade him to think or act ungodly, I'm experiencing this situation that is meant to persuade me or think ungodly because of God. For God cannot experience a situation that is meant to persuade him to think or act ungodly with evil. And he himself causes no one to experience a situation that is meant to persuade him or think or act ungodly. But each person, verse 14, experiences a situation that is meant to persuade him to think or act ungodly when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so I read through that, not to confuse us, but hopefully to realize as we go through that, no, this is temptation, and temptation is meant to make us think ungodly, to make us go away from God. And yet a trial is meant to draw us to God, it's meant to prove our faith, it's meant to strengthen us and help us to endure. And so in verse 13, James moves from these trials into temptations. And basically he's saying, as you go through this trial and you experience this temptation, don't blame God. The God is not associated whatsoever in any way with temptation. He's not a part of it. He's not the cause of it. God is not associated with it. He's not the root cause. And as I work at the hospital, you guys know, whenever there's an adverse patient event, when there's harm to a patient, we stop everything. And a team gets together and we look at the chart and we figure out every process, every step, what orders were made, what the nurses did, what the therapist did. What happened to make this happen? What was the root cause? What was, the, what was the reason behind this issue? And we get in a room and we write that up on a whiteboard and we put all those steps, all those processes, we start to connect, say this caused this and this caused this. As you do that and you put everything on the board, you can see that's where it went wrong. That's where it went wrong. That's where the order was misunderstood. That's where someone misread what the doctor wrote and it ended in this negative effect for the patient. And my point is, is, as we do that, as we think about our temptations, God is not the root cause. And God isn't even on the board. He's not associated with it whatsoever. But we're in this situation, we're enduring, we're in this trial, we're experiencing difficulty, and we start to experience temptation. And we look for someone to blame. And this is our society, this is our culture, is to look for someone to blame. Right now, the Republicans are blaming each other. Later, they'll blame the Democrats. The students are blaming teachers. Teachers are blaming administration. I was on the basketball court on Tuesday with seven and eight-year-olds. They were blaming each other. It's everywhere. And it's easy for us to see it in others. 
I sat down with Mariana and Rodan afterwards. I'm like, why couldn't you guys pay attention? Nobody was listening to me. Nobody would listen to what I wanted to do on the court. And I said, what was going on? And Rodan quickly, without thinking about it, said, well, Gustavo wouldn't quit touching me. And, and Kevin kept talking. I said, did that, and that caused you not to listen to me? Well, no, but Gustavo wouldn't leave me alone. And he kept going, he kept going. He could answer my question. He knew that that didn't change the way he responded. He was still responsible for his actions, but he still wanted to blame those other kids. And we're the same way. And yet sometimes we might blame God. Like, God, why have you put me in this situation? Why have you allowed this in my life? And when you think about that, how silly that we would blame God for tempting us when He is incapable of tempting and what that does is it shows that we don't know Him. We profess to know Him. We profess to have this relationship with Him. And yet we're blaming Him for something. We're pointing the finger at Him when He can't even do it. He's not even associated with it. And so James wants us to know who we need to blame. Who is responsible for our temptations as we go through these difficulties, as we experience these trials. So who do you blame? When things are hard, when you're experiencing difficulties, do you blame your husband or your wife, uh, your kids, your brother or sister, your brother or sister in the body, your neighbor? I know for myself, I've done all of those. And usually it's those that are closest to me are the ones that I'm going to blame. And James says that's not who you need to blame. We need to blame ourselves. In verse 14 it says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And you're probably thinking, well, what about the enemy? What about, what about the devil? What about Satan? Doesn't he tempt? Yes, he tempts. But James doesn't talk about him here, and so I'm not going to talk about him here. Because he's talking about as we're in difficulties that God has placed in our life, that God is using to build in us steadfastness, who are we to blame when, we lead, when we're led into temptation? We're to blame ourselves. He doesn't talk about the enemy here. And he says that we're lured and enticed. It's a process. That we're going through this difficult trial, whatever it is, we're standing up underneath it, we're trying to endure, we're trying to be steadfast, God is making us perfect to complete, and yet we start to look to the left and we look to the right. We start to consider, what might, how might I get out of this? Do I really believe that God is going to use this for His glory and for my, my good? And we start to think about what we desire. I desire comfort. I desire ease. I desire rest. I desire prosperity. But yet God's got me in this trial. Does He really know what He's doing? I think I may have a better way. When we start thinking like that, it's because we've stopped counting this trial joy. The moment we stop thinking, we start having this perspective of joy in this trial, is the moment we start considering getting out of it. If I was counting it joy, I wouldn't consider getting out of it. And as James is writing to these believers who have been sent out from Israel, who have been persecuted and had to leave, they're in a place that's not their own, they had to be questioning God and saying, God, what are you doing? We're here, we had to leave our homeland, I'm being persecuted, 
Life is difficult. Do you really know what you're doing, God? How can this be for your, for your glory and for our good? So this temptation begins to lure us. We begin to think about it. We begin to consider it. And I know um, I was told not to use this illustration. Because this is California and not Georgia. But when I grew up, my granddaddy taught me to fish with a cane pole. All right? So we would go to the lake, and you had a cane pole. Does anybody know what a cane pole is? A couple of people. Okay, so I'm going to walk you guys through this. So a cane pole is a long stick, basically, okay? Like a bamboo cane. And at the end, you have your line, and it, about this far down from the line, depending on how deep you want to fish, where the hook is, then you would put a bobber. All right? That's a technical term, a bobber. All right? And so you'd put the worm on the hook or the cricket, all right, live bait we'd always use. You'd drop it in the water and you'd watch the bobber and you'd wait for the fish to come by. And it's not that the bobber would be sitting there and all of a sudden it would just go under. So you'd see it start to, start to bounce a little bit. And man, I remember being five or six years old and getting excited about that. And as soon as I'd see it start to bounce, I would just rip it out of the water. And my grandfather was like, Britt, you got to be patient. You got to wait. The fish is going to start to play with it. He's going to start to consider it a little bit. And the fish are smart. He'd say, you know, they know that there's a hook behind that worm. They're going to try and pick it off a little bit at a time. And so you wait for them, and they continue to consider the bait. They continue to look at the worm. And soon enough, the fish would grab it, and the bobber would just go straight down and go under. And that's when you were to pull it out. And I use this illustration because that's really the intention of this word. It's this idea of lure that we, we would look to the left and the right that we're remaining under this trial and start to think, man, life would be better if I wasn't underneath this trial. And we start to consider that and I start to think about it a little bit more and a little bit more. I start to talk to my wife about it. This is bad. This is difficult. We shouldn't be in this situation. I talk to my friends. I get them to confirm it. I'm thinking more and more about it. And then finally I enter into it. And I get off this path that God has put me on. I say, God, I don't want this trial that you're using to build me. I don't want this trial. I want ease and comfort. I want to get out. And so as we do that, we lose our perspective. And what happens is that sin is conceived. In verse 15 it says, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It develops over time. It's not an immediate action. It requires conception. It requires two things to come together. It requires our desire, which we all have, with a wrong perspective, when we choose not to have joy. And so as we choose not to have joy, we enter into this, pers- this, this temptation, and we sin. We choose to think and act ungodly. And I want to be very clear as we choose to do that, that it says sin when it's fully developed it results in death. And we all sin, we all experience sin in our life, even as believers. But if we continue to engage, we continue to be lured, we continue to enter into that, we continue to sin, it's going to fully develop into death. And that's the perspective we need to have. That's the truth. And the only solution for that is faith in Jesus Christ. If we don't root ourselves in the gospel, 
we don't root ourselves in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we'll continue to be lured, we'll continue to be enticed to get out of this trial that I'm in, to get out of this difficulty, because I don't believe that God is really going to use it for His glory and for my benefit. We got on this, this path, this, this race, this course, because we understood, God, I am nothing, you are everything. I can't do for myself what you're offering me. You're offering me grace, you're offering me forgiveness. I'm sinful, but yet you gave your Son. And all I have to do is embrace Him. And we get to that point where we realize I'm in complete need of Him. And then we get Him. We receive Him. We get on the path. We get in the race. And then we start to be enticed and lured. So we have to maintain that perspective of our need, of our place, of our position. It's really... I've been so encouraged as I've gone through the book of James and realizing you can go back to the Gospels and you can basically find the teaching that James is teaching from the Gospels. And James was written before the Gospels. He wasn't going back to the Gospels to look at them and writing from them. He was writing from his experience as Jesus' half-brother. He was writing from his experience as the leader in the church in Jerusalem. And so I wanted to reference this because it's exactly what James is teaching in Matthew 13. When Jesus told the parable of the sower. He's talking about the seed that cast, that is cast along the path. Some that's on the path and some that's in the rocky ground. What's amongst the weeds and then what's on fertile ground. And he explains each. And this is where he's talking about the rocky ground. And he says, as for what was sown on rocky ground. This is the one who receives the word and immediately hears it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself. But he endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises, on account of the word, he immediately falls away. And I know as I read that, I was convicted of how many times that, man, I ran to Jesus, and I'll run to Jesus, and then as soon as difficulties come, as soon as trials come, I'll fall away. And if that's the repeated experience that we have, we continue to do that over and over and over again. We need to take note. We're not rooting ourselves in the gospel. We're not bound by Jesus Christ. We're not holding on to that and realizing our place. God wants us to be completely dependent on Him. He brought us into this race, and we have to depend on Him to run it. So James says in verse 16, Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. He's saying, my brothers, you're part of the body. I love you. I know you. I was your pastor when you were in Jerusalem. Don't be deceived. Don't be led away from the truth. Don't think what I've just told you, that, you're, that God is tempting you. Don't think that you can not be lured and enticed, that that wouldn't lead into temptation and sin and death. He wants us to trust God and to trust His Word. And as I thought about this, I thought about the Karate Kid, or actually my wife thought about the Karate Kid. You know, Dan- Daniel's son. So Daniel came from New Jersey to California, right? It was Simi Valley? Oh, Reseda, right here in the valley. How do you, this is a really good So I went from a Georgia illustration to this is completely a California, a valley illustration, so... So, but he moved to a place where he was a stranger, right? 
he was not at home. And as he came in, he was a tall, lanky kid, and he began to be bullied. He came across this group that these young kids were being instructed in karate. He got beat up repeated times. And then he found himself in a situation where he was being, he was in a fight. It was him against five or six guys. He had no opportunity, no way to get himself out of it. He was helpless. And then who showed up? Mr. Miyagi. Right? When Daniel couldn't help himself, someone came and saved him. Someone came to take him out of that situation, to do for him what he couldn't do for himself. The same way that Jesus came and chose us and pulled us out of a situation that we can't do anything for ourselves. But it didn't end there. Daniel said, you know karate? I need to learn karate. Daniel began to have this relationship with Mr. Miyagi and he says, I want you to teach me karate. I want to be like you. Train me. Lead me. I'll do whatever you say. Just teach me karate. And so Mr. Miyagi agrees, but he tells him to show up at my house tomorrow. And so he shows up and he gets him to wax and wash cars. He has a an entire junkyard full of cars and he has them wash and wax them all. But he does it in a certain way to wax on and to wax off. Right? Daniel goes home. The next day he comes back. He says, I want you to sand the floor. Sand the floor. And he does the opposite direction. Sand the floor. And he does the entire deck. The third day he comes back and says, I want you to paint the fence. You paint the fence up, you paint the fence down. The fourth day, he comes back, now I want you to paint the house. But you paint the house from side to side. So Daniel is going through this struggle. He has faith in Mr. Miyagi. I'm going to trust this guy. I'm going to do what he tells me. I saw what he did for me. He saved me. He brought me out of this situation where I couldn't help myself. I'm going to go with him for a little while. And you've got to think, as he's experiencing that day after day, of waxing on, waxing off, painting the fence, painting the house, he's got to be tempted to step out of this. He's got to be tempted to remove himself from this difficulty, from this trial that he's in. And then Mr. Miyagi comes back from fishing. It's late at night and there's a little bit. Daniel's almost done painting the house. And Mr. Miyagi walks by and says, you missed a spot. And Daniel goes off. He says, what am I doing here? Who are you? And I'm, I'm, I'm your slave. I've, I've waxed your cars. I've painted your floor. I've painted your house. I've sanded the floors. He's like, this is ridiculous. You're supposed to teach me karate. That's why I'm in relationship with you, is for you to teach me karate, and you're not teaching me anything. I'm, I'm out. I'm leaving. I'm going off the course. I'm going to get out of this race. And Mr. Miyagi calls him back, and he says, show me. Wax, wax on. Show me. Paint the fence. Show me, sand the floor. Show me, paint the house. And then Mr. Miyagi steps back and starts to just kick and punch at Daniel. And Daniel's able to block everything that Mr. Miyagi does because of what he's endured, because of this trial that he went through, because of what God did in him. And at that moment, Daniel realized, I can trust him. He saved me, and now I've endured through this trial, and I see what he's doing. He knew all along what he was doing in me. He was teaching me karate. That was the goal. And that's the same for us. God saved us. He brought us out of a situation that we could not help ourselves. And He is using difficulties that we may not understand. And we don't understand what the reason for them is right now. 
but he's building up in us endurance, steadfastness that would make us perfect and complete. And one day we're going to realize that. We're going to realize what it was for. And then one day we're going to be with him. We're going to receive this crown of life. And we have to trust him completely. We have to believe everything that he's telling us, what he's told us through his word, and act on it. It may not make sense. It may not, we may not see the result right away. But trust that he's the master, that he knows what's going on, and we just follow. So are you trusting God this way? As you go through these difficulties, we have to think about that. We have to be willing to do that. And if we get off that course, if we don't trust God, if we don't have faith, it's a course that leads, leads to death. That's the finish line. So we start by faith, we continue by faith, and we'll finish by faith. And our faith, as I've talked about before, it's based on the Word of God. It's based on what God has told us. And so as we finish the passage in verse 17, he says, this is how I want you to think. Don't be deceived. This is the correct perspective. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And then verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God doesn't tempt us. And even these trials, even these difficulties that we're experiencing, whatever they may be in your life, they are good and perfect gifts. They are to bring us to completion. We have to trust him and by faith respond to him. God doesn't change. He brought you out of your sin, He saved you, that you would be a kind of first fruit, that you would be dedicated to Him. He doesn't change His mind later as you go along the way. He wants to continue that. He chose us and He called us through the Gospel, through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what He has done and what He is doing is making us perfect and complete. And what He will do, He'll give us the crown of life. That's what James has talked about in these, in these verses. And he says in verse 19a, know this. Know this. We have to believe this and think this and apply this. And as I thought about application for us, as we consider this, when I've ever been taught about temptation, I've been taught to flee. If you're in a situation, you're being tempted, run away. Get out of it. But that's not what James tells us here. Because the temptation is from within. The temptation is what we're experiencing as we go through this difficulty. So instead of needing an exit strategy, we need a remaining strategy. How am I going to remain in this trial that God is using for my benefit and for His glory? And if I'm experiencing temptation, I need to identify where the temptation is coming from. And it's coming from my own desire. And I'm like, oh, so what are we supposed to do about that? If I can't flee, I can't flee myself. I definitely can't run from myself, although we try to do that. What am I supposed to do? And I tried to think of a, a process or look through the Scripture and understand what's a, what's a rubric, what's a way I can tell you guys, this is what you do when you're in a difficulty and you're experiencing temptation, but you want to remain, but you're tempted to follow your desire, to be lured and enticed. And I was trying to be really smart and come up with something great. And I felt like God said, Britt, 
I've already told you. James said, for, if you need wisdom, pray for it. If you need perspective, pray for it. And we tend to just skip over that. And this past week, I would tell you guys that it was one of the most difficult weeks. Um, and I say this very honestly, and I'm not saying it to bring attention, but it was a, one of the most difficult weeks in my life. And just feeling overwhelmed, in a sense, with the responsibility with what God has for me with, with my work, with my family, with my kids, with you guys, with this church, what God is doing. And I began to consider it, and I began to think about it, and I began to be exhausted just from my day to day. And by Wednesday or Thursday, Nita and I had some time alone. I think that was the first time we talked. <laughs> and we began to talk about the difficulties. And we were actually, we, we, we left the house to go talk about this message. Because she was going to be interpreting and we wanted to talk through it. And we ended up spending our time just talking about the difficulties, really confirming each other how hard it is. And the next day, I got to work. I didn't feel any better. And I realized as I looked at this, we didn't even pray. We got together and we just encouraged each other about how difficult life was. And we didn't even stop to pray. I've been reading this, I've been studying this, and I wasn't even putting it into application. God wants us to apply this. And we have to listen to His Word and we have to act based upon it. And I, before when we talked about this idea of praying, I share with you guys again from the Gospel from Luke about when Jesus was going through difficulty, when He was experiencing trial. How did He respond? What did He do? And this from chapter 22, it's when Jesus goes to the garden, the Mount of Olives, and He goes to pray. He's going to be arrested that night. He's going to be tried. And he's going to be beaten. He's going to suffer. He's going to go to the cross. And He's going to pay for the sins of the world. He knows that's coming. He knows that trial is he's on, the, on the edge of it. And so he prays. In verse 39 it says, He came out and proceeded as was his custom. This is what he did regularly. He prayed. When he was in difficulty, he prayed. It says, And the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at that place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And you got to think that the disciples have been following him for three years, and as he entered Jerusalem, as he was completing his ministry, they were experiencing this difficulty as well. They didn't understand it completely like he did, but their life had to be difficult, and their life was about to be more difficult. They were about to experience trials for the remainder of their life, and for many of them it meant death. It meant that they would be martyred. And so he tells them to pray, just as James has told us to pray. And then verse 41, it says, And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and He knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me, yet not My will, but Your will be done. Jesus prayed for God's perspective, not His own perspective. He says, I want to see this trial as You see this trial. I want to understand what You are doing through this. And Jesus understood that. And so for the joy set before Him, He suffered. He went to the cross. He died for us. 
And how did God respond? In verse 43 it says, Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. Jesus prayed. God gave him strength. What did he give him strength to do? To pray more. So Jesus prays more. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Jesus prayed, and God did not remove the difficulty. He did not remove the trial. He didn't remove even the physical exhaustion, the, the physiological response Jesus had, the sweating of blood. He was so under this pressure, so under this difficulty, knew what was before him, knew what he had to walk through, that he was sweating blood. And so God may not remove our difficulties. When we go to him and pray, we don't need to always pray for him to remove our difficulties. We need to pray to have a right perspective. And it may be tough, and the difficulty you're in may not go away. But God wants to use it to build steadfastness in you, to make you perfect and complete. In verse 45, he comes back to his disciples. It says, When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And I've read this many times, and I always knew he found them sleeping. But I just thought, you know, Jesus prayed a lot longer than they did. They must have gotten tired and they fell asleep. You know, they were just lazy. But it says they were sleeping from sorrow. They were sleeping from anguish. They were sleeping from... They were overwhelmed with this difficulty, with this trial that they were a part of, that they were experiencing as they walked with Jesus. And I've got to think they were either exhausted, one, and just couldn't go any longer, or either they were so overwhelmed, I just need to remove... I just got to go away. And the only way I can get away is to sleep. And sometimes we look at other things, whether we look at drinking, whether we look at focusing on our job. I just want to get away. I can't handle this difficulty, whatever it is, and I just need to focus on something else. And yet Jesus says to them, He says, get up, wake up, and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You can try other things. You can do other things. You can focus on anything else. It's not going to work. Pray. Pray that you would have perspective. Pray that you would have wisdom. That you could walk through this. That you could endure this. It seems so simple. And it's so hard. It's so difficult. I experienced it this week. I knew what to do and I didn't do it. But when we finally realized that and we did it, God has given me more strength. He hasn't removed anything. I'm still waking up with the same situation, the same difficulties. But I have a little bit different perspective. It's not my perspective, but God's. And so we have to have wisdom to understand that it's a trial. We have to remain by faith. And I want us to know as I finish up, as we talked about Emmanuel and Melanie, if, if they go, we go, that we are a body, that you are not out there on your own enduring a trial by yourself. It's not up to you, it's up to the body. And that we need each other. We need each other speaking into our lives to give us perspective. I can be on my own reading God's Word, talking to my wife even, and go through days and days and not realize how wrong I was, how I wasn't applying what God was showing me. And we need others in our lives to step in and to give us perspective. And that's why we do discipleship. That's why we gather together. If we just came here once a week, said hi to each other and shook hands and, and fellowship for a little while, 
What about the other six days? What about as we go through those difficulties? We need our brothers and sisters to speak that truth into our lives. And I wanted to share this story that Ernesto shared and someone shared with him and I'm going to try and share it. And It'll probably be like telephone and it gets a little bit distorted. But it's a true story. And it's a, three women that were in a, a village in China. And they had come to Christ. They had come to profess Christ and they did that publicly in this village and they began to be ostracized, particularly for their faith. And not just by the village, but by their husbands. And because of their profession of faith in Christ, their husbands, these three women, would beat them regularly, beat them daily. But they would come together and see each other at the well. They would go to draw water as they had to do daily and they would they encountered each other and they realized they were in this similar experience. They were all three being beaten. And when they were there together, they could talk to each other and say, no, I know this is what God has for me. I understand His Word. I'm going to endure. I'm going to remain under this. It's going to be for God's glory and for my good. But as they would go off on their own, they would start to think differently. Their perspective would start to change. And over time, each of the three women considered leaving. They considered running away. They considered getting out of the situation. But as they met, they would encourage each other, remain, remain, keep on, keep on, endure. And all three of the women's husbands came to Christ over that time. They continued to endure. They continued to encourage each other. And because of each other, they remained. And so we have to be willing to do that with each other. We have to be willing to share what we're struggling with. We have to be willing to share what our difficulties are. When we sit down, when we interact during the week, it's not just to hang out. It's not to just read the Bible. It's to change our lives. It's to be in each other's lives. And it's hard to share difficulties. And as I was going through this week, my nature is to hide that, is to literally, yesterday, being overwhelmed. In my house, there's nowhere to sleep. I'm going to go sleep in the closet. You know, there's no quiet room. And my wife, because she loves me, sent out a few texts and says, Britt needs help. And it's hard for me to tell that to you guys. And it's hard for me, when she, I know that she texted that, I knew it was right. I knew I needed help. I knew I needed to speak with somebody. I need to share what was going on with me. But I wouldn't have done that on my own. I wouldn't have done that if my wife hadn't have done it for me. And so I was able to have conversations. Trent came up here with me last night. We were able to talk as I was preparing the sermon. And just to see that, to realize and to feel that, to have the body around me saying, I can't do this on my own. I can't maintain this perspective. And so open your lives, open your struggles with each other so we can share with each other, so we can encourage each other, that we can remain in this race. This is not a solo race. This is a team race. We're on this course together, and we go together. If, if, if you go, we go. Right? We're together. We have to think that way. Father God, I pray that through your Spirit, Lord, you would just take the words that were spoken, Father. Lord, I know at times confusing and with distractions. And Lord, I pray that you would use them for your glory and for our benefit, Lord. Lord, that through your Spirit you would transform our hearts, Lord, that you would show us our perspective right now as we go through difficulties, whatever they may be in each of our lives, Lord, whatever they may be for us as a body. Lord, we want your perspective. Lord, I pray that we would continually count it joy 
because we know what you've done for us, we know what you're doing for us, and we know what you will do. Lord, and we run this race to achieve the prize, Lord, to be with you, to have the crown of life. Lord, let us not be distracted, be lured away by our desires. But Lord, we would combat our desires with your perspective. Understanding that you are at work, you are making us perfect and complete. Lord, and even these trials are good and perfect gifts that come from you. Lord, change our minds, and I pray that our minds would be focused on your word, that we would put our faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, nothing else. Root that in us, Father. Lord, and I pray that you would join us together, that you would unify us as a body, that we might experience that together, that we might point each other to your word, that we might help each other to keep an eternal perspective. Lord, I pray that you would do that amongst us. Lord, that we would endure with joy. Thank you for allowing us to participate. Thank you for saving us. Lord, and help us to say thank you for these difficulties. Lord, we love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name. Amen.